put your trust, my life in your trust, in essence, correct? That's what it's talking about is trusting in the Lord for what He has already done by dying on the cross for us. If you have your Bibles, I invite you at this time to take them and turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> Romans 14, we are down to verses 7 through 9, but just an introduction to remember what was happening in 6 and before. Obviously, as we looked at the previous verses, one can eat meat and one can abstain from meat. Is that true? Yes, that's true. One can reverence on a certain day better than others, and others can reverence all the days, right? They're all equal, and so on. It, it seems, though, it seems that there seems to be a double standard. Is that seemingly correct? It's okay to eat that meat offered to idols, and it's okay not to eat that meat offered to idols. How many see that as kind of a subjective to the man that's in charge. True. It does seem that way. It seems that there's a double standard that everyone is judged by, and it's subjective standards. If this were to happen in an organization like a church <laughs> or a business, how many people would get pretty upset about this? Well, they get something and they're doing something different than I am and it's, that's not right. That's not, what do we say? It's not fair. That's what we would say. That's not fair, we would cry. Which herein reveals the big problem. If we cry, that's not fair. We are crying that because we are thinking and being motivated by self true. Remember, the whole context is premised on chapter 12, which is saturated with loving others. As a matter of fact, it says nothing about loving ourselves in the positive. Self-love is a big problem within this context. Frankly, it is highly possible even that Christians can serve and love others for even selfish reasons. Another aspect or glimpse into our selfishness is not only this meat and drink and day thing that we just read in the text of Romans 14, 1 through 6 area, but also the idea that we think many times that we should simply reproduce ourselves. In other words, everyone should think like us, everyone should worship like us, and everyone should live like I do. Why? Again, because we have way too high a view of ourselves. True. Reality is we must all must be saturated and totally transformed into people that do not look at others and compare. Amen. They do not look at each other and become jealous. They do not look at one another and become angry. They do not look at each other and roll their eyes at their incompetence in our minds. We should be saturated with loving God instead. But in this world that we live in today, 
How many would say, you know, we do look at others to compare? Why? Because we can always find a fault in somebody else that we think is worse than our faults. Well, the, act, the reality is that fault that you just expressed is worse than all of it. Jealousy, because something, someone got away with something I didn't get away with. Angry, and then we just blow people off as they're just incompetent. Reality is, every soul is important to God, and therefore, every soul should be important to us. Amen? And we're not just talking souls here, although I use the term, all people. We are to love others, period. The comparing, the jealousy, the anger, and the pride are all sin for certain. No question they're sin, but they are just leaves on a tree that is rooted in the real problem. Do you know what the real problem is? The real problem is that all of us are idolaters. What? Holy smokes! By the way, I don't know if it, Peter Gaiman just preached a message last Sunday. You need to go and listen to it. He started it just awesome. <laughs> Christians are stupid. <laughs> well, yeah. And then he goes and explains all. But the point of the matter is, the same thing is true here. We are all idolaters in a sense. We are. Schreiner says it this way, the very heart of idolatry is to refrain from glorifying and thanking God. Okay, so what makes me an idolater? Many people think, well, what makes me an idolater is that if I worship or if I put more time and money into something other than God, that's idolatry. Well, Schreiner's trying to push back on this. He says, listen, the very heart of idolatry is to refrain from glorifying and thanking God. Where do we get that? How many think if there's a Bible verse about that, I'd, I'd kind of go with it? Well, let's go to Romans chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. Romans chapter 1, because listen, this is a letter written by Paul to the Romans, and so the whole letter is the context. Amen? The whole letter. And this 14 verse 7 is now going to go right back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the Bible says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But, but what? They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed beasts and animals and crawling creatures. How many have heard this verse before? Many times we look at this and we say, this is talking about what? Unbelievers. Amen, amen, and amen. That's the point. Some might say, well, this is talking about unbelievers. That's not talking about me. 
Well, let's just look at a few things. That's true. It is about unbelievers. It is talking about unbelievers, but let's just look at these verses in more detail. Are they, is he talking about the unbelievers that we would know? Let's look. Number one, these people knew God. These people did not honor or thank God. Even though they knew Him, they didn't honor Him and they didn't thank Him. As a result, they became futile, foolish, arrogant fools, the text says. Their final outcome is they did not glorify, did not honor, did not thank God, but instead glorified humanity and other living creatures. Now let me ask you, this certainly is not, in my opinion, and I think yours too, After this is certainly not your run-of-the-mill, run never-heard-about-Jesus unbelievers. It's not, because they knew God. This certainly, this certainly can be attributed to professing Christians in the pews today. Paul tells these people, he goes on, the next verse, verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than their creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to a degrading passions, for their women exchanged their natural affection for that which is unnatural. In the same way also that men abandoned the natural functions of the women and burned in their desires towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolence, arrogance, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, dot, dot, dot. And although they know the ordinances of God... Not only do they know God, but they knew the Bible. And although they knew the ordinances of God that those who practice such thing are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those that practice them. Then in chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, you have no excuse. Schreiner is correct. The problem with many, if not most, that claim to know Christ is that they are idolaters. Because the very heart of idolatry is refraining from glorifying and thanking God. And by the way, you can define it however you are will, but someone that is an idolater, yes, they love other things, they embrace other things, to the expense of not honoring and glorifying God. That is the point. They're not thanking God for what they have. They think they brought them on themselves. Man, we know we pulled our boots up with our own straps, right? 
Man, it's by God's grace we're sitting here. It's by God's grace we breathe every day. It's by God's grace we can experience peace in His love and goodness to us. All that we have is by God's grace. We may not serve the living creatures. We may not have an idol in our closet. But we have a decisively bent attitude to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And what better way to look good than to compare ourselves with others, which is exactly what verses 1 through 6 say, stop it. It's wrong. The underlying issue with all of that is pride and idolatry. To look at others with intent to prop up self is the very heart (coughs) I'll read it again. To look at others with intent to prop up self is the very heart of absolute wickedness. The legalists do it that say, I'm better than you because I follow the letter of the law. The free willers do it because they look at there and say, you're not grown up, you're just this weak little wimp, you don't know what you're talking about. Both parties do it, and they're both wrong, dead wrong. Paul says in this text, it's okay to eat meat, I thank the Lord for that. But it's okay not to eat meat too. They're both acceptable. <clears throat> we must look to God. He is what it is all about. Paul can tolerate diverse practices which do not violate any biblical or normal norm or moral norm. How many understand that? Not talking about sin. It's not talking about that at all. Paul tolerates diverse practices which do not violate any biblical or moral norm as long as they are motivated by what? To the glory of God. I will eat no meat to the glory of God. I will eat meat to the glory of God. Whatever it is, it must be to the glory of God. We see this in other texts also. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, after a long discussion of 8.1 through 10.30 on food offered to idols, he says this, whether you're eating or drinking, one must do so in order to what? Glorify God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. One must do all things, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and Father through Him in all things. Doing all things in the name of Jesus means that one does everything for His honor and His praise. The text in Colossians indicates that thanksgiving to the Father is one is one indication that all things are being done in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. And here's the reality. I would gather, and this is a guess, that not one of us woke up this morning and said, praise the Lord, thank you so much for the bitter cold weather. Correct? Oh, Bob did. (laughs) We have one. Do we get what do we get what I'm saying? We thank the Lord for all what we think are good things that happen, folks. Everything that God puts in your path in your path is in his plan. He is sovereign God. 
You have a job, and we'll get to that as we go through this text. In Romans 14, all our actions are to be practiced to the Lord. To the Lord, we will find out. This is precisely what verses 7 through 9 are telling us. The reason the rules seem to be unfair in our judging, in our selfish minds, is because we are idolaters of selves. Newsflash. This is a big newsflash. It's not about you. And what a great, great passage for Christmas. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about Him. The theology that is screaming off the pages of verses 7 through 9 is that all things are to be done to the Lord, period. That is the whole essence of that text. Everything you do is to the Lord, and when they are not, it is idolatry. This is exactly what Paul is going to express to us. That root issue, remember all the leaves of jealousy, anger, comparison, that, that type of nonsense. The root is, it's about me and about me alone. Do everything you do for my glory. Thank me is what he's saying. Verse 7, let's look at the text a little bit more distinctly. The Bible says, for not one of us, in verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. The link with verse 6 is obvious, for verse 7 says that no one lives or dies, how? To himself. Rather, we both live and die to the Lord, it's going to say. But we don't live and die to ourselves. Neither the strong nor the weak live for himself or dies for himself. With no other object in view, that is... Listen, if we live or die to ourselves, the only object of gratification is who? Ourselves. As if we deserve that. Folks, we don't deserve anything that God gives us. Morris says it this way. By the way, this is very difficult because verse 7, one of my favorite, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but one of my favorite authors um, says, neither the... Uh, yeah, there is one line with, I think it was eight words, 12 words for the explanation of the whole verse. There was nothing there. So I went to multiple, I mean, lots of books this week. Morris, another commentator says this, none of us lives or dies to himself. We neither live nor die of self-contained units as if it's all about us. There is a sense in which no man is an island all to himself. And what they're doing is many of these commentators are going down the social road. We're not an island of ourselves. And it's true. We are not an island of ourselves. Let me ask you this. Let me not ask you this. I'll wait till it gets in the notes. Otherwise, I'll be mixed up. All of our actions affect our fellow men. For instance, when we live and die, we affect others, do we not? We're going to affect others. And some commentators want to go that direction. That is not what Paul's trying to say. Although it's true, it's still not the point of the text here. Paul's not, what Paul is, he's not trying to say that. Paul is saying that neither in life 
nor in death can we escape the fact that we do that what we do and and are does that make sense what we do and what we are we do and are before god listen we're not down here by ourselves doing our own little thing Decisions about matters like special days and eating meat are not in isolation, but in accordance with the will of God as understood by the individual. Remember, we talked about this last week. The reason someone doesn't eat that meat offered to idols isn't because it's sin. It's because in their mind, it conjures up all these wicked, horrible things, and they lose focus of God. Therefore, to grow in the Lord, to know Him better, I'm not going to do that. Now, someone would look at today and look at him and say, what a legalist. He won't eat the meat offered to idols. That's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. You don't live in their body. You don't know what's in their mind. You don't know their background. You don't know how they've been hurt. You have no idea. I've been reading a lot of biographies, and one of the things that has come up, I wasn't a reader. I, I hated reading. When I was a kid, I could not stand reading. I read one book. Everything else, cliff notes. That's all I did. I couldn't stand reading, but I'm, I love reading. I'm learning a lot. But one of the things that kept bothering me, and I keep talking about, what possesses someone to write an autobiography? What is the motivation behind that? Every, has anybody thought of that or am I just weird? Both. Got it. But an autobiography is what? What does that mean? You're writing about yourself. Do you know why? I'm not going to say right or wrong. That's, that's irrelevant to the conversation. They're writing about themselves because they want people to know their story. Just like every single one of us at some time want others to know what you've been through. True? Very true. And yet, we don't know, I don't know your story, you don't know my story, although I talk about it a lot up here, unfortunately, because the people don't like to be illustrated, so I illustrate myself, right? Or my family. <clears throat> the reality is, we treat others as if they lived a life just like us. Here's a newsflash. They didn't. Their background's totally different. They have seen some horrible things. Some horrible things may have been done to them. And you have no idea. Treat them all in love. Is that not what the text is saying? Romans 12, very clear. Treat them with love. We are not self-contained units. We are not an island to ourselves. We affect other people. The decisions about matters like special days and eating meat are not in isolation, but in accordance with the will of God. They are doing what they believe God is approving of. It is not sin, so leave them alone. Love them. Encourage them. They're doing that because they believe that's pleasing to God and it's not sin. If it's sin, we need to deal with that. That's different. That's not what we're talking about. 
neither in life nor in death are we quiet alone. We do both. <coughs> I'll say this again. Neither in life nor in death are we alone. We do both before God. No one lives, lives or dies for himself. Morris rightly states it again. He says, it is God, not self, that is important ultimately. Muth says it this way, all believers live out their lives accountable to God. The critical commentary says it this way, to dispose of himself or shape his conduct after his own ideas and inclinations. That's not how we are to live, Christian. Amen? It's not about me. It's about him. That's what this text is saying. To consecrate oneself is to neglect our maker. To, to, to focus on ourselves, we then become ungrateful and unglorifying to the man who deserves it, God. That's the issue of this text. Bailey says it this way, the very essence of sin is self-centeredness. Oof. He nailed it. Another one says, to dispose of himself or shape his conduct after his own ideas and inclinations is absolute wickedness. The reference to death is super important here. Look at the text. Whether we live or whether we die. The reference to death is important. We do not truly control. How many of you controlled when you were born? What a stupid question, Pastor. It is. Nobody controlled when we were born. Except God. Nobody controlled how we were born. Except God. Nobody controlled, and this one's really important, why you were born. Except for God. Amen? Think about that. God's sovereignty is on display in your life. What a great thing. We truly do not control our birth. And frankly, we don't even control our death. Some people think they might want to, but they don't. Matter of fact, the first century Stoics thought that exact. They seek to choose both the time and the matter of his death. This is not a Christian option. Amen. Our deaths are in his hands and in his purposes. Death is an enemy, but it cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. Romans, again, chapter 8. God designed and gave, here's the reality. God designed and gave you life to fulfill his purposes on earth. And when your task on earth is done, he's going to take you home to glory. Woohoo! Is that exciting or what? What a great truth! He will then take us home. These are so sovereignly his calls. Your birth, your death, your life are all his sovereignly controlled desires. Verse 8. We are not, obviously we found in verse 7, to live or die for selves. For if we live, what do we do? What do we do, church? Live for the Lord. 
If we die, what do we do? We die for the Lord. These are the realities. We are the Lord's. The believer's goal is to please God in all things and to thank Him for His gifts in order to do those things. Amen. Because of the term for that you see in verse 8, verse 8 constitutes an explanation of verse 7. Believers consciously, whether in life or in death, live to please the Lord in all of life. And even at the hour of death, the believer's aim is to please the Lord, to bring praise and honor to His name. Even at the death, believers resign themselves to God's will. And by the way, not only do, do believers resign themselves to God's will, but unbelievers resign themselves to God's will. Because one day they're going to sit before, after, or during their death. They will stand before the throne of God. They'll cry, Lord, Lord. And He will look at them with a stern finger and say, Depart from me, I never knew you. <gasps> what person is He talking about? The same one talked about in Romans 1.12 or 21. The same one talked in Romans chapter 14. The ones that know God but truly are not subservient to God. There is a difference. Listen, Christianity is not knowing God. The devils know God. Anyone that has ever heard a certain know of God. In all of life and even the hour of death, the believer's aim is to please God. The conscious submission to the Lord that is found in this text. This is so cool. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Well, who is this talking about? <clears throat> I'm going to advocate, and we're going to find it in the end of the text here that we're in. This is this is extremely, uh, uh, focused, we'll just put it that way. This is absolutely focused on, and this is a big word, and it's a huge word, and it's a divisive word, and it should never be a divisive word. This is called the Lordship of Christ. Say, well, there's nothing wrong with that word. Amen and amen. That, that is a glory word. Unfortunately, there are those that have made it a divisive issue. Whether you like it or not, Jesus Christ is Lord, period. Period. He is. There is no denying it. And this text, we're going to get to verse 9, you're going to, oh, I, now I see it. But this text is, is, is extremely focused on it. Schlater says it this way, we live to the Lord because His judgment determines the course of life and because fulfilling His will is the purpose and goal of our lives. How many say amen and amen? The purpose and goal of every Christian's life is to please the Lord and do what He says. Amen? Then why don't we talk that way? Why don't we live that way? Frankly, in America, we live and talk like if it's our own thing and we do it ourselves. Do we not? It's all about us. We're idolaters. 
God's sovereignty over our lives is communicated in verse 8. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. How many of you are looking forward to dying? Some of you are. How many Christians truly, I've given this illustration, I'll give it again. One of my dearest mentor friends, Pastor Daryl Moeller, I love him dearly. Pastor Daryl Moeller was the teenager that I looked up to as a little kid. He became my youth pastor. Then he became my pastor. And now he's my friend. That man <clears throat> was a youth pastor. And a senior in that youth group eventually married him. Her name is Jane Moholland, who is by... Doesn't matter. <laughs> Reality is, all the teenagers got around Pastor Moeller and said, hey, guess what? She's going to be down, or you're going to be down that aisle looking at your bride-to-be. And before she gets down the aisle, Jesus is going to come. Let me ask you, does that get to the heart of what this is talking about? Because in our minds we're saying, yeah, just wait. <laughs> right? Just don't, don't come yet. And on the other hand, our Christian side saying, yes, come Lord Jesus now. Now, we did it in the opposite in grade school, right? Lord, this chemistry test, I don't want anything to do with it. Come now. Same thing, different position, right? The reality is, do we really love the Lord or do we love our lives? We have been too ungrateful and therefore we have lost sight of our God. That's the reality. Uh, since believers are under the lordship of Christ. By the way, does God own us? Well, where do we get that? Look at verse 8. Whether we live or die, we what? What's the word? Belong. We belong to the Lord. Remember when he said that earlier? I have bought you with a price. Jesus Christ owns us. We don't act like it. We don't. Believers are under the lordship of Christ, whether they live or they die, it doesn't matter. Christ's death bought all that, and we'll see it in just a little bit. We live to please and honor him in both life and death. Oh, death is death. How do you please God in death? Oh, my. Let me put it this way. A Christian's death is when he really starts living. Think about that. Christian's death is really when he starts living because he's face to face with Christ and all things are perfect. How many would love that today? Amen? What a great truth. Verse 9, 
for to this end. How did this happen? How were how we bought with a price? How, how is Jesus Christ Lord, the Lordship of Christ? What, how does that even work? The Bible says, for this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. That is the very reason we celebrate Christmas, is so that Jesus can be Lord of both the dead and the living. Amen. That's what the verse is saying. Verse 9, the Lordship of Christ is established on the basis of two great events. Christ is the Lord of both the dead and the living by virtue of his death and resurrection. Praise God for that. Amen. Praise God for that. We know that he is Lord of life and death because he has conquered death. How? Through his resurrection. Jesus Christ conquered death. You know, in a sense, I feel sorry for all the other gods out there. They've never experienced life nor death, nor resurrection for that matter. Right? They're only occupy the minds of the unregenerate. Of the unregenerate. Let me ask you, does self occupy the minds of this regenerate? And if it does, I got a problem. It was for the very purpose that Christ died and rose again. <clears throat> Is this has to refer to the resurrection, not the earthly life of Christ. It's He came to life. Namely, He might become. He came to life so He could be, in other words, or He will become the Dead, uh, the, both the Lord of the dead and the living. Both Christ's being Lord of the dead and his being Lord of the living equally depend on both his death and his resurrection. Folks, his life was paid to buy you. That was his life, the propitiation. It was to buy us. We have been bought with a price. What price? His life. We are not our own. It's all about Him, not me. It's all about Him, not me. He paid with His own blood our redemption. We find that in Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7. If you want more, there's a lineage of more. Paul charged the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There is no such thing, and there should never be any such thing in a Christian vocabulary as a self-made man or a self-made woman. Because we're God-made men and women. Amen? We're God-made. Unfortunately, the Lordship of Christ has become such a negative principle because some believers believe the Lordship of Christ is optional for believers. That is simply not true. It's not true. Matter of fact, the very people that voiced this 
that, that lordship is an option, have now splintered into many groups over what? Yeah, the Bible says Jesus Christ is Lord. And they have to admit, you can't go against Scripture, amen? Here's the problem. You were born because of Christ's sovereign lordship. You were born again due to His sovereign lordship. You will pass into glory because of His sovereign lordship. Did you follow that? Let me say it again because it's so important. You were born because of God's, of Christ's sovereign lordship. You were born again to His, according to His, due to His sovereign lordship. And you will pass into glory. He will receive you home and give you a, a palace that He's making for you. By the way, that verse is so fantastic. We're going to go on excursus real quick because it's awesome. I go to prepare a place for you. John 14, 6, I think, something like that. I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, he didn't, how many remember him saying that when he created the earth? <laughs> Do you see the, he's upping the ante. How many get this? This thing, how many think earth is grand? Heaven's much more grandeur. To be grammatically incorrect, but to make a point. It's huge. Er. Like it or not, agree with it or not, the facts are the facts. Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord of all that is alive and dead. What else is there? Nothing. Nothing else matters. Jesus is Lord. Christ is Lord. MacArthur says it this way, To deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the life of any believer is to subvert the full power, work, and purpose of His crucifixion and resurrection. I don't want to be one of those spitting on that. But I do when I think of myself more highly than I ought to think. It's exactly what I'm doing. One of my one of our sons in his infant ages had that problem. I, I can get that. I'll get that. I'll do that. Always, always doing something. He could do it. He can do it. He can do it. Reality is, most Christians are that way too, and we're not. We can't. Without Christ, we are nothing. Nothing. Adding merely that what Paul is here particularly interested in is the relation relational aspects of Christ's lordship, his securing and exercising lordship over men. He died not only to save us, he died to own us. Not only to free us from sin, but to enslave us to himself. We are his. We are not our own.
I'll end with the passage of Scripture. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which we are committed, Christ. And having been freed from sin, by the way, this is Romans chapter 8, I believe, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you were presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Praise, I mean, can you see America in that passage right there? You presented your members as slaves of impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now, that's, that's, that's the old person. That's who you were. Now, present your members as slaves to righteousness. What does that result in? Resulting in your sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed of? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from them and enslaved to God, that's the word, you derived your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome of that Eternal life. How many excited about being with Christ for eternity? Won't that be a great day? Now here's the deal. Are you excited about being with Christ? Or are you excited about playing golf and having a hole in one every time you try? In other words, is it about Jesus or is it about you in your flesh? I'm telling you, that is a conflict in many Christians' minds. When we die, we die for the Lord. Amen? But don't forget the first one. When we live, we live for the Lord. What's the practical outcome of that? You serve your Lord in your job. You serve your Lord as a good father, a good mother, a good son, a good daughter, a good brother, oh, hang on to this one, a good sister, a good husband, a good wife. Does that make sense? We can't do that in and of the flesh. It has to be done in the glory of, for the glory of the Lord. It has to be done with Christ. Amen. We are not alone. We're not alone. Paul said it very well, and I can't give you the exact address, but Paul said, my testimony is good among men. Why? Because I'm a good father. Well, he didn't say he was a father, but in essence he was saying, because I'm a good father, a good husband, a good wife, a good employee, a good <clears throat> fellow brother or sister in Christ, people I'm good to people. I love people. And there's nothing that they can put against my charge. How many remember him saying that? Folks, can we even come close to that? 
Or are we the Romans 121 Christian, or professing Christians? We know God. We know His Word. But our lives are a sinful mess. Rely on the Lord. Honor and thank Him. That's what the text says. We honor reality and truth. There is no greater than God. We thank truth and facts in love. No one does it better than God. Do we thank and honor God as we should? To be honest, I think most Christians would have to say no. We can do better. We're wrong. And that's exactly where Christ wants us to be. Lord, please help me. Because you alone are Lord, not me. You alone are Lord. Mr. Gaiman, could you come and close us a word of prayer, please? Please stand, I'll pray, and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for the power of your word. I pray that embracing you as Lord would be a joyful response in our hearts and that we would serve you as we should and we should uh, boldly proclaim that we are your slaves and we are here to live for you. And even when we die, Lord, as Pastor Graf said, then we start living. Thank you for these truths. Empower us to live as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.